Hi there, and welcome back to I Hadn't Considered That. I am your host, Vanessa Tori. Well, we knew it had to happen at some point. Eventually, we were going to have to dip our toes into discussions about sex. And this isn't even really a conversation about sex. It's like sex adjacent, but it is a conversation that needs to happen in light of what we've been discussing recently, especially with last week's episode in the aftermath of overturning Roe v. Wade. And we need to start having some more conversation about roles and responsibilities and stigmas that are attached to us as sexual beings, whether we are a male or a female. And of course, to do that, the first person I thought to have on the podcast to have this conversation with is my friend Joe Duncan. Joe is a fellow writer on Medium, and you could say that Joe is a sex writer, and people have called Joe a sex writer, but Joe doesn't write about sex in order to do it in a sensationalized, shocking way. One of the things I love about what Joe writes about is that he presents information from a very data-driven scientific perspective so that we are not just understanding our feelings, but we're understanding part of the rationale and the nature that goes with that. So this has been a very fun conversation in which we've been able to get into the discussion of what reproductive rights and sexual rights mean for both genders. When I first was introduced to Joe's writing, it was in a way that carried a little bit of angst for me. When I was writing a lot of content on Medium, this was probably about three years ago, I was writing a lot of pieces on women's issues. I still do. It's something that I very much enjoy doing. And I had earned a top writer tag on Medium in the topic of feminism. And when I looked at the top writer list, I saw that I was number two. But then I looked at the person that held the number one spot and I'm like, well, what kind of bullshit is this? Because the person who was right above me was a man named Joe Duncan. And then I started reading his stuff and it was incredibly refreshing how he presented his thoughts in a way that was not prescriptive and that was not in any way condescending to either gender. And I think it's really important that we are including men in the conversations that we are having about reproductive rights, because if we are going to, as I do, take a firm stand that reproductive rights are not just women's issues, then we have to bring men into the conversation and allow them a seat at the table. And I'm really glad to have the opportunity to do that today. Before we get started, I do want to give you a couple of reminders and a couple thank yous. First of all, the response to this podcast, we are on episode 22 and I'm seeing growth and I'm seeing that there are a lot of people that are joining the communities, whether it's on Facebook or coming into the conversation on Instagram or elsewhere. And I'm so grateful. If you are enjoying this, and I really do hope that you are, there is a way for you to help ensure that I can continue to bring you content that you're enjoying every single week. The podcast is completely listener supported, which means that you have an opportunity to help with the sustainability of the podcast by becoming a patron of the podcast. 
that starts at a very low level of $5. And there are some benefits that you get along with that, including an online community, an invitation to our Wine Wednesdays. And there's also some bonus content. So after every single interview with the podcast guest, I do five rapid fire questions and those go into the Patreon. And those are just super fun. But there's also little things here and there that I'd like to throw in there. But it's a great way to continue to build community. And I would love for you to join me over there and to help keep this going so that we can continue to have amazing conversations like the one that I'm about to bring you with Joe Duncan. And I really do hope that you enjoy this and want to continue to build pathways toward having bigger conversations around bigger ideas. Now, let's talk to Joe Duncan. Welcome, Joe. Thank you so Hello. much for spending your time with us today. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Joe Duncan, and I uh, we met on Medium. I am a full-time Medium writer, as well as for other places. I have a substack, scienceofsex.substack.com, uh, where we explore you know, human sexuality biology through the lens of science because i firmly believe that a lot of people don't see it this way but i think that sex rights are human rights um right now we're my girlfriend and i are planning a, a trip kind of to somewhere else to some other country and it's almost like you can take a map of lgbt rights and a map of women's rights and you could overlap those with a map of humans rights um pretty much anywhere where you know, LGBTQ rights are non-existent. It's probably a place I don't want to go. So I think it's very crucial. Like, you know, if, if being gay is illegal, I just don't even want to go to your country. That might sound snobby, but that's just how I feel. I think that people should have equal protections under the law. I think that's kind of the bare minimum. And I've come to learn that there's a real correlation between sexual rights and human rights. And I believe that extends to reproductive freedom as well. So Wonderful. And I think that this is such an important time to be having the conversation that I think I've been wanting to have with someone for quite some time, especially regarding the different roles that men and women play in our own sexual rights, in our own sexual freedoms, and in our reproductive rights. Because there is so much rhetoric and discourse that's occurring in our country that I am really trying to wrestle with because I'm hearing things for the first time time from people that either I hadn't considered or are ideologies that I can't even believe still exists. And I feel like right now we are finally starting to peel back some layers from an onion. But it's like if you've ever gone to your refrigerator and you know you have an onion in your refrigerator somewhere and you're going to go ahead and see if it's still good to use it and you peel back a layer of the onion and you're like, there's some funk going on with this, man. And I feel like the layers that we're peeling back on this onion are just revealing some funk that I am really struggling with right now. One of the things that I'm seeing that I want to chat with you about is this sort of different gendered interpretation of reproductive rights and responsibilities, given what happened last month with the Supreme Court. And I think that what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing and the feeling that I'm getting that is just really kind of eating at my soul is that the entire problem of abortion, reproductive health care, and contraception seem to be taken as a problem that is a women's issue and that it mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily affect men. But for the first time, I'm starting to hear conversation where men are entering into this trying to figure out what their role is. 
And I think that conversation needs to shift around responsibility. And it's interesting because I had written an article, I think last year, after reading something that somebody had written in one of my comments on one of my women's issue articles on Medium about this idea that there's women running rampant all over the country that are tricking men into being fathers when they don't want to be fathers. And you had written something, I think about a week and a half ago, regarding sort of the opposite take on that. That was something that I didn't even think happened, which relates to sort of a, a subversive side of unwanted pregnancies, which is stealthing. And so right. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about that and to share what you've learned in some of your research about what men's roles and responsibilities are regarding um, reproductive rights and their role in contraception even. Um, absolutely. Sure. Um, a couple of things, if I can just uh, say a few facts first, just because they'll be handy, I'm sure as the conversation. Absolutely. Goes. We love um, data over and, here. And this whole sphere is rife with misinformation. So it drives me absolutely crazy. Um, one thing that's slightly just a detour real quick. Um, when it comes to abortion, people, especially people who are pro-life, they tend to have this idea that there are women out there getting these late-term abortions. You know, they, they're six months in or seven months in, they decide, you know what, I don't want to have this baby, and they terminate it. Uh, but the facts are quite contrary to that. Uh, so I see a lot of this framing around the conversation of, well, when's the cutoff point? Should it be three months? Should it be six months? Um, what drives me nuts about that conversation is that um, 80% of abortions happen in the first nine weeks of pregnancy, uh, when the fetus is just you know, a tiny embryo, uh, which by and large, most people consider an acceptable time frame. 91% uh, are performed within the first trimester. Uh, you can even find that on Fox News' website. Um, so it's a myth that there are you know, just tons of women out there terminating pregnancies in the name of convenience after six months and beyond. Um, I think that's a big misconception that people have when they enter the conversation about responsibility, reproductive responsibility. By and large, women discover that they're pregnant and they know whether they want to have a child or not. Nobody carries around a kid for seven months. They deal with the hormonal issues nausea, vomiting, the sickness, the cravings, the you know financial burdens, and just decides out of convenience, you know, seven months in, you know, this really isn't for me. That's it's not a decision that happens like that. And so even when we talk about, you know, oh well, six months and then anything after that is is a no go, you know, six months is enough time to make that decision. Well, who are the remaining nine percent of women we're talking about? I think uh -huh. anybody with, you know, with a little bit of logic can figure out that these are the people who have medical issues uh, because it's such a small percentage. The leftover 9% who are terminating pregnancies past the three-month mark, they might have a doctor that tells them, you know, this pregnancy is non-viable. I've written about uh, some male friends who have gone through that agonism of dealing with people who wanted to have a child. And, uh, you know, a few months in, they were told, hey, it's not viable. They weren't able to access abortion care, um, even though they wanted the kid. So it's not quite black and white. Uh, it just drives me nuts when it gets framed in, in certain ways. So I think we need to understand when it comes to, to responsibility, this, this notion that I hear from men a lot when they say like, oh, well, you just need to be responsible. The facts on the ground totally belie that, um, that position, that idea. As far as stealthing goes, I had no idea until I did the research how, how prominent it is. And that is basically where 
in the middle of sex, someone removes the condom. And men do this freakishly more often than we would think they would. Um, in, I was you know, shocked. I, yeah, yeah. Um, it was only brought to attention in 2017 when Alexandra Brodsky you know, published a paper on it and they called it rape adjacent. People are in the middle of a sex act. They did not consent to having condomless sex and somebody withdraws the condom. That's that's rape. I mean, there's no way around. Uh, you know, just because I consented to one type of sex act doesn't mean I consented to, say, somebody poking holes in my con. You know, just for you know, an abstract. One study found that 12% of women had experienced stealthing, and a follow-up study found that 10% of men admitted to stealthing. So that's pretty common, and I think it really defeats this motto we keep hearing a lot of people are saying, if you just be responsible, you wouldn't have to worry about pregnancy. And uh-huh. it's like, no, that's 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 not necessarily true. Uh, another study, a more recent study uh, from Australia found that 32 percent of women been stealth. So that's about one out of three. And uh-huh. even 19 percent of men, one out of every five had been stealth by other men uh, when it comes to gay men. So it's not a unique problem to just women. Men have to deal with it, too. And it's a very big problem. But it also throws a wrench that whole notion that, that only irresponsible people need abortion, which is just flatly true. When I did the research on the prevalence of women who quote unquote trick men into fathering children by lying about being on birth control or not using birth control, the numbers were roughly the same. It was not though that the women had admitted to doing it. But there was a study that showed that about one third of the women that they asked said, yes, they would lie about it. It didn't mean that they had done it. It posed the question as a hypothetical, not as an absolute. I think that you have two pieces of data that correlate to each other and and run parallel to each other, but don't necessarily intersect. And one is sort of this idea of I am going to intentionally not take my birth control so that I can get pregnant. And the male view of this, and usually the feedback that I get from men who think that this is massively prevalent, is that women are doing this in order to get money from men so that they can have a kid and have somebody take care of it. And I'll tell you, that is a very patriarchal, misogynistic view of how women function in the world. But I'm very much a big fan of this idea of it takes two to tango, right? Anytime that you have a sex act that is consensual between two people, I think that there's a matter of equal responsibility. If a woman is going to lie about contraception, the motives are different than if a man lies about contraception. There are men who may want to actually have children who may have the same motives about stealthing that a woman may have in not taking her birth control, but it seems like the decision is based in pleasure, not in determining an end result. From what I've seen, um, it's it's not an apples to apples comparison. Uh, it's definitely more apples to oranges. Let's call it what it is. What you're discussing is a conspiracy theory that there are women sure. out here who are, you know, trying to trick men into impregnating them so they can have babies and get I don't know child support from a guy who doesn't have any money in the first place. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you when you give it a little bit of a critical analysis. I mean, more often than not, they don't have much money. But yeah, the motives are totally different. One is to have a baby by yourself that you raise all alone. It kind of reduced single motherhood to this fun process of when it's anything but. Um, it's not something to be taken lightly. Versus stealthing is 
yeah, it's about pleasure. It's about making a momentary bad decision, uh, ignoring the consequences and, you know, harming somebody in the process. Yeah, they're totally different things. It's not like an apples to apples comparison. And uh, full disclosure, you know, my girlfriend told me early on in our relationship, what if her ex-boyfriend actually did poke holes in her condoms? Um, with wow. A, yeah, with a, like a sewing needle or something in an attempt to try to get her pregnant. The guy actually reached out to her like decades later and was like, hey, I, yeah, I, yeah, I did that. Like, I mean, he owns it, right? So it's not a matter of like if it was happening, it was the fact that it was happening. Uh, and I think when it comes to people whose motive is to have a child with somebody, the motive isn't usually to have a child with somebody, it's to actually like secure a relationship that they feel exactly is they want to possess this person uh and i think that in both sectors you'd be able to find people on the margins you know maybe half of a percent of people out there who might engage in that kind of behavior but i would assume that it's very very minimal compared to stealthing which is you know it, it almost just flows naturally into the very patriarchal bro culture we have that you know it's like a frat boy culture that you know that kind of treats women more as objects as conquests than you know human beings with dignity and rights uh, like anybody else so yeah i think i think that's it's just totally fallacious and it is a conspiracy theory to suggest that there are women out there trying to impregnate themselves to become single mothers especially when there's like fertility clinics where you can just go and you know and they will like my friend works for a bank and they are extremely strict on who they allow to donate and he had to like I think he could only like have any intimate relations with his girlfriend like one third of the time every month. Uh, mm -hmm. He had to have degrees out the wazoo. He had to be a certain height. He had to have you know certain characteristics because sure. all of those things are very important. He's going to have a baby. They want to know what genes they're they're buying, right? For better or worse. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many options out there. Right. We're supposed to find a man, have a baby, live happily ever after. And the reality of it is that the timing doesn't always necessarily work at that point. It goes back to the idea that you had mentioned where this is something that women are willy-nilly doing later in the term of the pregnancy. There are so many parts of pregnancy and motherhood that are being glossed over. And you're talking to a woman who has spent 11 years as a single mother, right? Like it is not a walk in the park. I got my tubes tied when I was 33 years old after I had my daughter. Um, no more. No I more. closed the shop. And, and there's, there were two reasons for that. And, and one of them was that um, I got divorced from Caroline's dad right after she was two and a half years old. She wasn't even three years old when we got divorced. And I was young and I was definitely childbearing aged. But what I realized is that whether or not I could have another child was playing so much into the pressure of finding another mate in my life, another life partner, if I wanted to ever have another child. And so it put an undue pressure on me as somebody who was a single mom going out there and dating. And the other part of it was raising my daughter was not easy. I mean, being a right. single mother is hard as hell. And I don't know anybody that would want to just randomly choose that unless they are a very financially secure woman who has helped to get that done. But that was a choice that I made for myself, which kind of leads me into the next thing that I wanted to talk about was the man's role in contraception. And one of the things that I had realized in 
doing some of this research on the man's role in this, because my take on it with the idea of men being tricked into fatherhood was if you don't want to be tricked into having a child, it is very easy to solve that problem and you wear a condom, right? So, but a woman who is um, taking birth control is doing something that's affecting her body, right? We treat contraception for women like it's something that we just normally does that doesn't have an effect on us. And it is much cheaper and easier and more convenient for a man to take contraception into his own hands and that extends to vasectomies. And you have been very vocal about a responsibility that a man can take in controlling his future and the future of the person that he is with by having a vasectomy, which is much more easily reversible than a woman having her tubes tied, which is very difficult, if not impossible to undo. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your take on vasectomies and the number of people who should consider this? Uh, well, full disclosure, I was vasectomized. Uh, when the news broke that Texas had passed their restrictive anti-abortion bill, um, I made an appointment to get vasectomized. I had one within two hours. I don't live in Texas, full disclosure. I live in a state where it doesn't necessarily affect me as strictly as it affects other people. Um, but it was an act of protest. I was really angry. And even if it wasn't going to undo what Texas has done, or now at this point that you know Roe's been overturned with Dobbs versus Jackson, uh, it's I can't undo that, but I can take the responsibility into my own hands. Um, you know, essentially Florida, where I do live, we have Roe v. Wade codified as law on the state level. You know, you get three months, whatever reason. You know, I personally, I don't agree with that. I think it should be a bit more expansive because, mm -hmm. again, people have health issues that those really need to um, be looked at. And, and But that's another conversation we might be here to have. To me, the vasectomy was just, it was the obvious answer. And there was a recent piece in Bloomberg that was written that said that, said that after Roe was repealed, that there were men all over the country basically doing the same exact thing. Um, and it was an act of protest. At first, I thought, oh, man, are they finally just now getting responsible? Like, they're finally now saying, okay, well, now it's maybe my time to, mm -hmm. you know, to take a little bit of responsibility. But it seems that, that you know, overwhelmingly people consider it an act of protest. My procedure was quick and painless. Um, you know, I cannot recommend it enough to men who are certainly don't want to have kids. A lot of disinformation about vasectomies floats around as well. The idea that they're reversible is... Malleable. Um, it depends on when. If you if you if you're 18 years old and you get a vasectomy, you're going to be over 70, 80 percent chance of being able to reverse it. You know, within the first five or six years. But as the vasectomy goes further and further and further away from the original date, it becomes less and less. And you know, by the time you're 10 years out, you have less than a 50 percent chance. So I think it's 49 percent of. Um, of being able to reverse it, which is, you know, I just, I think that it's important that people weigh those consequences. But um, if you know you don't want to have kids, or if you, you know, if you can take a, a five-year plan on it um, in your early 20s, then yeah, I definitely recommend it. For me, it was $690. Uh, I've Had I made less money, uh, there were state options available, and they would have helped me pay for it. But um, I make, thankfully, enough money to, to kind of negate those. 
And there was also even an option that I could have another doctor, of just like a fresh out of med school doctor, observe and watch the 30-year veteran do the procedure. And that would have knocked the 690 down to 200 bucks. Oh, wow. So it's really cheap. It's really affordable. Um, and that's in Florida where things are pretty expensive here in, in Orlando. So, you know, the options are available for men who, who don't want to deal with it. And the way that I see it, like, I, I just paid the 690 because they were like, you have to wait an extra month if you want to do the $200. And I was like, no, I just want it done now. The way I see it, that even $690 is a very small price to pay compared to the possibility of having, you know, a child accidentally or, mm-hmm. hey, even possibly a child accidentally and child support for the next 18 years. So right. if you're a guy out there who's considering it, boom, there's your answer. Uh, you just don't have to ever worry about it ever again. And I, I did a piece that, that covered some of the science. People who have vasectomy couples who have vasectomy tend to have much more robust sex lives. Um, they have a lot more sex in general. Studies have found. Um, and I think part of that is less about the mechanics. And I think it's more about women finally getting to take their first full breath since puberty of not mm. being the sole person who is worried about pregnancy and yes. child rearing. Um, I feel like I feel like women have to hold their breath from the moment they hit uh, they hit puberty until the moment, you know, where you know, they stop producing eggs or, you know, their partner gets a vasectomy and then they finally just don't have to worry about it. Because as I said earlier, you know, I mean there's a lot of different things that can go wrong. Condoms have a six point six percent failure rate. So you know, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of things, accidents that can happen. And I think that women finally get to be themselves. Jesus with, Christ, with that's a good point. Sectomized man. You know, they, they finally don't have to worry, is this dude going to ditch me if things go wrong? Um, and, or, or, or even if he doesn't ditch me, is he going to see me differently? Is he going to see me as property? It's an incredible point. I mean, we start, we, we get our period when we're 13, 14 years old. But from that time, there is a narrative that is told to us, do not get pregnant unless you are married and ready to have a child. Do not get pregnant. And even beyond that, I mean, we could dig even deeper down into the the way that you do that is to not have sex, right? So no one is talking to the boys about abstinence in a way that they are talking to girls about abstinence. So from the time that we are 14 to the time that we go through menopause, we have this thing looming over us that is our ability to have children that affect us on so many different levels that people don't even imagine, whether it's we go from, gosh, I don't want to get pregnant, I can't get pregnant, and then we do find someone, we get married, and then, oh my God, I have to get pregnant. And I mean, I I started the like the day I got married, we were in full family mode. I mean, I don't think that my ex-husband and I ever really sat down and had a conversation about whether we were ready for that. I mean, we just we just did it. We just jumped right in. And interestingly, something that people don't consider with that 9% of abortions that occur after the first trimester is that a medically necessary abortion is still reported to the CDC as an abortion. So I had a miscarriage before I had Caroline in which 
my body did not get rid of the miscarriage. Like, so I, I didn't really miscarry. And so we went to the doctor and there was no heartbeat. And so I was told, well, we can wait a couple of days and see if your body does what it's going to do naturally. But if it didn't, I would have to go in for a DNC, which is an abortion in order to get rid of the fetal tissue so that I didn't go into sepsis and jeopardize my own health. But that's still reported in that 9% of those numbers. But this idea of having that weight lifted from us is critical. And I think it definitely does play into the importance of women's roles and how we're perceived and men's roles and how we're perceived regarding sex in general. And you hit on the idea that women are sort of this conquest. I don't think that we can have this conversation without talking about the double standard that surrounds men and women and how our sexual activity is interpreted by the masses, right? So interestingly, I, I don't know a lot of women who have had three, four abortions. I just don't. Mm -hmm. I think that the idea that women have them repeatedly over and over again as a means of, of birth control, I, I don't think that people that say that understand how much it is emotionally to go through even just the experience of thinking that you're pregnant or being pregnant or carrying a child. It is, it is a huge deal emotionally to women. However, I know several men who have fathered three, four unwanted pregnancy, right? So the idea is that the women are the ones that are playing fast and loose and having multiple abortions as a means of birth control. But men have the ability to create far more unwanted pregnancies than a woman does to have an unwanted pregnancy. I mean, a woman can only get pregnant so many times during one year. A man can get a woman pregnant 365 days a year. But we're not talking about that. The, the stigma is solely attached to the women. Right. Well, it's, it's an inversion. Uh, of, uh, I mean, it's a very old you know, biological concept. Uh, the idea of parental investment that, that you know, throughout the animal kingdom and humans as well, uh, you know, men just don't have parental investment to the degree that women do. Women's bodies change. They, you know, they house a baby for nine months and then they have a baby. And, you know, it's since the dawn of sex animals, you know, uh, by and large, men have been able to, you know, impregnate a woman and walk away. Uh, and that goes for every other kind of animal too. Some animals don't care. That's just how they live. Uh, but humans are very different because we're social animals. It drives me nuts that there's, I think it's an intentional inversion of that that idea that 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 men have you know biologically fast and loose we we have it um you know a lot easier in that sense but they invert it so that way it makes women seem like they are just recklessly having all this sex when you know society from top to bottom throughout has a lot of mechanisms for punishing women's sexuality you know and of them i think um I think forced pregnancy is one of them. I think that there's a sense of vengeance here with that. Mm -hmm. I think that I think that um, a lot of people are very angry. You know, a lot of people think that it's reasonable 
reasonable to sentence women to pregnancy and whatever consequences come along for just simply wanting intimacy. And so they reframe the conversation as well. There are all these women out here just casually using you know, abortion as, as birth control. And I just, I don't, I don't think that's the case. I haven't seen it anywhere in the data. Uh, I'm welcome to check out any other data. I'll welcome it and take a look at it, but I really just don't think that's the case. With the control of women's reproductive rights, it goes hand in hand with not just controlling a woman's right to have an abortion. It is a, a means of controlling a, a woman's sexuality, right? Absolutely. It is it is an imposed morality on women that we're making them the focus of that insistence almost on abstinence because that double standard of, of a woman has casual sex and she's a slut, but a man has casual sex and there's no stigma that's attached to that. I, I think that this is more than just reproductive rights. It's absolutely a mechanism to scoot women right back into their lane that we are supposed to be controlled and that we are supposed to be these um, beautiful, just sweet, pure things that aren't supposed to have wants and needs. We're supposed to be vessels and we're supposed to serve a purpose and anything that we do to express desire or autonomy is tossed by the wayside. Um, absolutely. I'm not sure if you saw, I, I did uh, a lengthy, lengthy piece uh, that basically just detailed the history of the last 400 years of oppression of women's sexuality. Uh, it was titled, History Shows Us the Abortion is, Issue is More About Religious Control and Less About Saving Babies. And it's true when you, um, you know, I hate to drag religion into it, but it, it's the elephant. Oh, you have, you, you have when to. You, when, you, when you juggle the numbers, um, you know, more men believe that abortion should be legal than they don't. Um, similarly, more women do than don't. In some few research polls, men actually outnumber women in this. Uh, in other ones, women outnumber men, but it's pretty close. The thing that really stands out is religion. Evangelicals really drive the pro-life movement. Uh, they're only 20, approximately 28% of America, but they, 77% of them believe that, uh, that abortion should be legal, you know, illegal in almost all cases. Yes, 77% of white evangelicals think abortion should be legal in all or almost all cases, uh, either way that is. So basically, the, the entire anti-choice uh, sentiment is driven by religion. The piece basically detailed, you know, since the beginning. Uh, back in the day, there were two crimes. There was fornication uh, and there was adultery, uh, fornication and, and sodomy. Uh, sodomizers were put to death. Fornicators paid a fine. What was the difference between those two? Well, technically, it was supposed to be that uh, sodomy is having, you know, sex that's outside of the eyes of what is deemed godly. And adultery is, uh, or fornication is uh, having sex before wedlock. In practice, though, uh, men were charged with fornication. Women were charged with um, adultery, put to death. So men would pay a fine. Women would be put to death, or you know, severe um, corporal punishment. And that's you know, in the 1600s, the early 1600s. And there's just this unbroken chain of trying to control women's sex lives that takes place in very, very religious extremist circles. Um, and yes, you are absolutely right that it's an extension of that. Um, and, you know, my premise is this, that if it was truly about saving babies, why did they pass the, the Comstock Act, which um, it criminalized condom use even uh, for 100 years? It 
criminalized sex ed material. Um, it criminalized contraception for for a hundred years, and somewhere in America, condoms were illegal, which is hard for I think most modern Americans to believe. But why would that be? And the year before Roe v. Wade was decided, the last of the bump stock laws were struck down, and condoms became legal in every state finally. Um, so you have this perfect narrative from like 1620 until 1972 of, you know, all these laws that say that, you know, that, that sex needs to be punished somehow. And then Roe v. Wade enters the mix and then you have a 50 year break and now it's back to the same old stuff. And that's why they're talking about repealing LGBTQ rights and putting sodomy laws back on the books. Uh, you know, the attorney general of Texas. Ken Paxton said that, that, you know, he's okay with putting sodomy laws back on the books. And that would punish, you know, LGBTQ people and cishet people alike. So it really is about sexual control. And it's, there, there needs to be a mechanism of punishment. And, but it's not universal. It's definitely more geared towards punishing women. And it always has been. Ever since mm -hmm. it was, you know, women were put to death and men paid fines for the same crimes, you know, 400 years ago. Now it's there has to be a punishment and and you know having to raise a baby as a single mother or multiple children as a single mother having to go through the pains of pregnancy having to go through all of that and not having absolutely any say in the matter that's the punishment mechanism for a lot of people and you hear it when they talk I mean you know there's there's just like a sinister power play involved where they're like well you just don't want to get pregnant you just don't have sex and it's like that, and I that, think that's the narrative. That's the message right. that is is the clearest is women just don't have sex. Right, right, right. And the, which is which is by definition coercion. Uh, you know, it's it's giving people these two really uncomfortable choices and then patting yourself on the back and saying, hey, I'm giving you a choice. Um, you know, uh, a lot of the men who are who are against, uh, you know, abortion, a lot of pro-life men. They want the sex, but they also want to divorce themselves from the consequences of the sex. Um, they say things like, if you don't want to get pregnant, just don't have sex. And that's all well and good until you won't have sex with them. That brings me to another question. This is something that I had heard before and somebody else had brought up. I had to take a breather for a minute on it. And the idea is that women should bear all of the responsibility for birth control and for pregnancy because we are the ones that give consent. Sex does not happen unless we say so. So men are just out there wanting sex all the time and just waiting for some woman to come along that's like, yes, sir, thank you. I would be happy to have sex with you. And because I'm saying that I will, you're just absolved from any responsibility you have because you're just being you I'm giving you the okay and you can't have sex unless I do. So it is sort of this idea that women are the gatekeeper of that morality because we are the ones that make that final decision. And I think that that is such misogynistic patriarchal bullshit that I, I can't even, I can't even wrap my brain around even a woman that is sharing in that, that idea, that internalized misogyny that she carries that we are all supposed to be responsible for this as as women. There's absolutely like a like a I don't know black and white. It's almost like bipolar. It's like don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, have sex, and you have all of the responsibility for doing so. And men are totally off the hook. I think a lot of people who believe this they 
rationalize it by kind of appealing to nature and saying, well, you know, I don't know, hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago, you know, that's how it is, you know, in, in the natural world. But there's a lot of things in the natural world we see that these same people would support. I mean, infanticide is all over the place. Like, I mean, not talking about abortion, talking about like taking a toddler and killing it. Like that's, I mean, that's, it's even in primate species and in a lot of human tribes, we see that across the world. So there's a lot of things that just because they're natural doesn't mean we should build our society based on them. In fact, that's the whole point of society. That's the whole point of civilization is to escape some of those worst, most depraved aspects of our humanity. Um, that have been with us since the dawn of time and to build something better. Um, but th- yeah, it, it absolutely drives me nuts that that people say that. And I think there is, a, even with women, I think there's a, a punishment element. I think it's, I'm going to punish you. And there's also a an element of power. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it sounds like they're talking about responsibility, but that's just how it's been packaged. In truth, they're talking about power. Um, you know, it, it sounds like it's practical advice. That's what it's pitched as. But but if you read between the lines, they aren't communicating advice. They're basically communicating that I have the absolute right to pass moral judgment on someone else's behavior, and I have the right to issue those consequences. Um, that's that's a statement of power if I haven't heard it. Sure. Sure. You know. So I, I think kind of to, to wrap up what I'm struggling with right now, and I will tell you that the entire week after Roe was overturned, I, I was in a horrible funk. It was I didn't want to leave the house. I couldn't go out to see people. I completely and I didn't leave the house at all on Fourth of July because I could not bear to go out in the public and see people that were even remotely in a good mood when I am such an an empath and I'm such an emotional person that to go out into the world on a a national holiday and see people that are acting happy just made me rage. So I hung in my house the entire day. And what I'm struggling with is trying to hold on to any sort of sense of hope that I have that that we can correct the course that we're on, whether that we can change narratives, whether we can change legislation, or whether we can get people to actually meet us on the road of understanding what this literally means rather than seeing it, as you've mentioned, as a conspiracy theory and as a means of protecting an unborn life. And so I'm doing everything that I can to try and get that change to happen in any way I can. But there are days when I just feel in despair and I feel like there is little hope. Where do you think our hope lies? Um, Well, it's very, very tough for me too. I'll be honest with you. Um, Usually I take things, I worked in politics for 10 years. Um, Usually I take things with a pinch of salt and understand that it can always get better and there's always another fight to take to, you know, be it the courts, the voters, uh, voter registration drives, things like that. But this one really stunned me. Uh, and it didn't help that I caught COVID-19 like immediately afterwards. And I'm still kind of dealing with that at the moment. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's really stunned me. I think there's going to be a very big backlash though, because so few people believe in what's being passed. So the majority of states are passing 
laws that uh, that were trigger laws. They were laws that were signed just waiting for Roe v. Wade to be overturned. And these are mostly outright bans, like six weeks or so. And then there's just no exceptions for rape, no exceptions for incest. These are mm-hmm. wildly unpopular policies that are being passed by an extreme minority. Um, only 8% of America believes that abortion should be legal in all cases. So the majority of states are starting to pass laws that are so contrary to popular belief that it's, I mean, there's definitely going to be pendulum swing backlash. So there's that silver lining in the cloud as well. And I think a lot of people are just trying to get by. It's really hard to um, to judge what people are thinking uh, all the time. They might be deeply hurt, you know, inside and, and just putting forth this face of, well, I'm just going through the motions and I'm going to pretend like it's not bothering me. But when they get home, it's really hard to see what's what's going on in their minds. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd imagine there was an uptick in people who went to therapy after this. It's, it's really bad. It's yeah. really bad. And there's, the ramifications are are so much bigger than just Roe versus Wade. I mean, now they're talking about um, undoing all of the other laws, Roe uh, versus Connecticut, uh, you know, privacy laws. They're talking about getting rid of basically any substantive right, which is, you know, LGBTQ rights. Like, mm-hmm. we have a Supreme Court that's legitimately talking about taking our rights en masse. That's a very, very big problem. The government's job should be to protect rights, especially in the United States, a country that prides itself on a constitution of enumerated rights. And they're just whole cloth taking away taking away some of the most fundamental rights that we have, the right to privacy, the right to bodily autonomy, things like that. And I don't think it can last long. Um, you just, you can't have that, especially in America, you can't have that kind of just flagrant, undemocratic appeal to power and forcing these policies down our throats um, without people taking to the polls and, 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 and hopefully uh, doing something about it there. You know, hopefully, hopefully we see um, a good turnout of people who support reproductive rights um, sure. as far as in this upcoming election this year. You know, uh-huh. um, hopefully people go out and they realize now how important it is. Hopefully that's the silver lining that that, yes, your right to bodily autonomy is on the line. And it doesn't just affect women, too. It affects men. You know, if if somebody can take your right to do what you want to do with your own body, they can take mine, too. Are they mm-hmm. as likely to do so? Probably not, judging by history, but they can still do it. It's still a very real possibility. And I think that men need to wake up and realize, if they haven't already, that this is this is your sign. I mean, this is the moment where it's it's getting real. You're not safe just because you are a guy. Um, this mm-hmm. this is going to have very real world consequences. Um, as I've said, uh, I published a piece on a friend of mine who, who they wanted to have a baby and she was pregnant and the baby was non-viable and there was just no way the baby was going to survive. And they had to go through the entire pregnancy and deal with it as if it was a viable child that they were going to get at the end, but it was a stillbirth. Mm-hmm. And yes. it, her parents were super evangelical and forced him to go to this funeral for a mm. non-viable pregnancy and he had to carry a casket of one and he was just the only pallbearer and that's really really hard to do right. that was I, you know, that was in the early 90s so it's changed his life considerably yeah but 
men, like I said, we, we tend to divorce ourselves from the consequences until that moment happens. Until sure. that's when we're carrying freaking coffins with you know, this, you know, essentially a fetus in it, as horrible as that sounds. And, you know, that's when it becomes real. And we need to, we need to wake up and realize that it's real right now. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Joe, for your time and having the discussion. Awesome. I love any time that we can have a conversation that incorporates data and science and emotion and realness that is part of the human condition. So thank you so much for, for joining me. I appreciate awesome. it. Yes, yes. Thank you. And uh, anytime I'll be back. Gladly. Thank you so much for joining us today. New episodes launch every Monday, so I hope you'll be back. If you enjoyed this podcast, there's several ways to show your support. First, by rating the podcast and leaving a review, you help others to find great content. Second, if you're looking for further connection, consider becoming a patron of the podcast, where you'll have a fun and interesting way to connect with others and even get more information on perspectives and things you may not have considered. Lastly, please share this podcast with a friend. The number one way that podcasts reach more people is through sharing and word of mouth. I appreciate you and your beautiful open mind. See you soon.